Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. As the labour market continues to exploit workers by offering precarious, low-paid and temporary jobs, Many people now live dual lives with jobs in both the sex industries and in non-sex work employment. Today I'm speaking to Raven Bowen, whose book Work, Money and Duality, Trading Sex as a Side Hustle, is published by Policy Press and is out now. Raven is the CEO of National Ugly Mugs, a UK-wide sex worker safety charity. Sex workers have been excluded from policy conversations, but Raven's book starts to address this by giving people involved in both sex work and square work a platform to speak about their experiences, the risks and benefits of duality, and for them to contribute to discourses about work, society and future policy. Hello, Raven. Hello. Hi, it's nice to meet you. Thank you for speaking to us today. So I think we should start with a little bit about you. What's your background and how did you come to write the book? I've been a practitioner working with youth and sex workers for the past 26 years, originally in Canada and then later in the UK. Um, I've done a lot of community development, direct support and outreach to sex workers on and off street, online, various populations. And for years, we've just been fighting to influence policy in ways that do not cause harm and actually increase safety to sex workers. So. It's been a lot of years of working, you know, with policy actors, with residents, with others to make sure that they don't enact policies that displace sex workers, that increase violence, that, you know, um, just marginalize sex workers in ways that they shouldn't be because they're part of our communities and they're part of our workforce. Um, And so I actually came to academics mid-career. I found that there was just this point where policy actors and politicians were listening to their parties and lawyers (laughs) and sometimes academics, um, but they weren't necessarily listening to populations with lived experience. Um, So I decided, okay, I can't afford law school, so I'll become a researcher. And I did my degrees and focused on sex work exiting, focused on re-entry, transitioning, and what I'm coining duality, which is people who are holding concurrent employment in sex work and square work. And some of the things that they represent for us is that everything you kind of said in the intro about precarious labor, about people working, you know, menial jobs that they're not able to save any money or do respond to emergencies and they're in term employment where they don't have access to to labor rights or they're considered phony self-employed and you know zero hours contracts where there's no predictability and it's like families need to be able to plan and predict and know what your income is going to be next week let alone you know saving for emergencies like the pandemic or or, um, you know, anything that happens in your home. So um, it's, it, this book wasn't, was part of my PhD project, and it sort of pulls out the best bits of that research. And as I was exploring what to to focus on, um, because in Canada, the MA programs are slightly different, you do a lot of coursework first, and then you have time to explore what topics you want to look at. And I landed on the exit literature. And it was very much people are in or out of industries, in is failure, out is success, and there was nothing in between. And that is not how 
I understood and witnessed sex industry. I've helped a lot of people transition out. I've helped people stay in safely. Like there's, but there was, it was nothing in between. And it seemed very, um, a lot of the literature that then informed policy was based on a very narrow population of really impoverished folks. And so we need to address poverty and mental health and you know, co-concurrent mental health and addictions issues. But that population specifically street-based potentially folks that are always or are perpetually in this uh, homelessness and, and dealing with survival, we need to respond to that with addressing the root causes, right? But there right. Were, are a huge segment of the population, probably 90% who are working off street and online, the people that you don't see. 90% of the sex worker population. Okay. Easily, yes, yeah, I didn't easily. realize it was that high. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. if you're thinking about how broad and diverse the sex industry is, it's everything from, you know, webcamming and content creation and performance and adult film and all kinds of, and off-street yeah. um, sugaring. And literally there's all kinds, um, burlesque and some forms of BDSM that is commercialized. And there's a wide industry. So in any given community, you're seeing like 85 to 95% is off street because that's, you know, so when you're seeing on street populations, they can't afford to be off street or there's some other issues that are making them more visible to the public. And so we should respond to those issues with, you know, detox and recovery and housing and income supports and all of those things that impoverished populations need, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But for individuals who are professionalizing their sex work, they need to make sure that they're safe, that they can call the police and the police will respond, that offenders know they can't target them because they're they're protected. They're, you know, individuals that we value their work, that they fall within labor law and have some labor protections, that they can take, you know, exploitive bosses to, to court and, and, you know, get settlements for harassment and exploitation that we see Um, sex workers are able to do in decriminalized environments like New Zealand and New South Wales. Mm. Um, So, but some of our policy responses are very much criminalizing. And for some populations, we criminalize and deport, particularly migrant workers. Um, But that's not a response to an economic issue, you know. And, And in our context in the UK, sex work is not illegal. Being a sex worker selling sex is not illegal. But there are certain places where um, we criminalize everything that you need to do around sex work in order to work safely. So our brothel keeping legislation, for example, we force people to work in isolation because when they work in pairs, we charge them both with keeping a brothel against each other. <laughs> and and yeah. so we, you know, it's count- in any other industry, we would say have these occupational health and safety guidelines, make sure that workers aren't working in isolation. And when they are, there are safety strategies in place for them to call and have ways of being safe. Same with, I think it's, you guys call them estate agents (laughs) because there are are lots of folks that go out and meet people and women who go out in their jobs and and meet people and they need to be safe the same as sex workers would. Um, But some of the laws make it so that they have to, in order to stay safe, they have to violate the law. So then when something happens, they don't call the police or they don't, they, they can't have any remedy to things that happen because they're committing a crime, quote unquote. So I think um, I'm just going to jump forward to a question I was going to ask later, but I think a lot of these um, laws or lack of laws are in place or not in place because of the way we see 
sex workers and the stereotypes. So what's the problem with these stereotypes of sex workers as either victims needing to be saved or as criminals? Are they actually at increased risk because of this? Yeah, um, we, um, so the stereotypes mean that we mischaracterize the industry, right? And we don't really, we, we, it, it also allows us to other people so that we don't understand the reasons and meaning behind the choices that they make. Um, so if we, if all you see of the sex industry is a woman who's leaning into a car under a street light at night, then you're going to say, oh my God, we have to criminalize buying. We have to rescue this person. We have to make sure that they're safe. That is one segment of the industry, but not the broad segment. And you have, and then responding to that by rescue, if, if sex workers ask to be rescued, right? Like yeah. what are they actually asking for? So when you talk to street-based workers and you talk to diverse populations of sex workers, they want different things based on how they engage in sex work, who they are, where they are, what they have access to and how they're able to exercise their autonomy. So we have to hear from the unique populations of sex workers and put in place the safety strategies and the resources that they need to stay safe. And then we also need to create options for people to explore other careers and explore duality if they want or or whatever. Like it, it can, we don't want anyone in sex industries who who are there because they're forced to be there because they have no other options for survival. So regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum of whether you see sex workers work or whether you see it as holy exploitation, nobody wants to see anyone forced to exchange sex for survival, nobody. So if mm -hmm. we start there and then all of the energy that we put into um, criminalizing and creating, closing SEVs and creating all these area restrictions and fines, we should put into actually addressing poverty because that will eliminate survival sex. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so if we look at guaranteed livable incomes or transition packages for populations that are experiencing high rates of violence, domestic violence, victims, sex workers, and whole populations, migrant workers, asylum seekers who are, you know, kind of forced to this legislated poverty because they're, they're living on such scrapings that of course they're going to find survival crime and survival work to do um, to supplement their income. Um, so I think that there are some basic things that we can do to make sure that we have a really strong and solid safety net, a social safety net, and then work on supporting sex workers in controlling the industry that they work within because they are the greatest proponents in eliminating exploitation, trafficking, child ex like child exploitation. They don't want any of that. They don't want exploiters, right? And so yeah. if we empower sex workers to design and control and regulate their industry, all those they'll design out all of that harm. But I yeah. think, you know, ultimately sometimes you become a conspiracy theorist in some ways because you you kind of think like who is benefiting from disorganization in sex industries? Who's benefiting from sex workers not controlling the transaction and not controlling the environment and not having choice? Like, I, I don't understand some of the drivers for criminalizing buyers in the Nordic model as we see or other forms yeah. of criminalization because it turns the sex industry into this buyer's market where right. sex workers lose the ability to negotiate because all of the power shifts to the people who have money. 
because when you criminalize buyers, you make them more scarce, right? And then yeah. they refuse to be screened and they decide, they start dictating what happens in transactions because they know they're rare. And then yeah. you have segments of the population who are not normally experiencing survival sex, all competing for that rare, scarce client. And yeah. that plays into the hands of exploiters who are just rubbing their hands together, waiting for all these unemployed dancers and unemployed you know, sex workers who are desperate for money. Like we would never, that's not an approach that we would ever want to apply to the industry where you turn it into a buyer's market. Like mm -hmm. sex workers compromise their health and safety. They work longer. They provide services they would normally provide. They do all kinds of things to get that client. And with, what really bothers me is that people implement these criminalized, like these strategies, these laws without providing alternate commensurate income to sex workers in these spaces, right? So if you yeah. want to close down a brothel or want to close down a sexual enter or an adult entertainment venue in Bristol, for example, yeah, yeah, you would yeah. make sure that all of the workers there have six months worth of transition supports, right? That have yeah. income commensurate with what they would make in those industries. So yeah. then they can decide, do you want to go back to uni? Do you want to look at other work? Do you want to move to a community that has an above ground sex industry that's regulated? Or do you want to follow the industry below ground, right? They'll have choices. Yeah. Um, I, I was talking to a sex worker um, last week, a group actually, we were talking to an MP, but after the MP left, um, one of them talked about, uh, we were exploring giving a hundred thousand pounds to farmers to retire. It's like, we don't offer those kinds of bio packages to sex workers yet. We're supposed yeah. to be worried about violence against women and yeah, you know, yeah. protecting vulnerable populations. It's like, we should put all the money that we spend in criminalization into dealing with anti-poverty and anti-violence among this population. Yeah, and it's not to say that these policy decisions come from bad intentions, but I think it is perhaps that lack of sex worker involvement in the discussion um, that means people just don't people don't have a full understanding of what's needed and the direction it should go in. I wanted to um, bring it onto your book now um, because you really bring those voices through in the book. Um, with this focus on duality in particular, where you have people in both the sex industry and um, in square jobs, um, non-sex industry employment. Um, so what is duality and why is it important to focus on it in this conversation about sex work? Yeah, I think it really expands who people think trade sex, and that's important. Um, and having a square job on the side of sex industry work is not new to people in sex industries, but it might be new to people who really only see that media depiction of who a sex worker is and what their predicament is, right? Yeah. So this book was an opportunity to um, expand who people understand as sex workers and also share why they engage in duality, why they do this, how they do this, and to bring understanding that it's not just this like, you know, unusual population of people. It is people who are responding to our precarious labor context, to the fact that we truly live in a corporatocracy, um, to the fact that, you know, they're already working in mainstream jobs. So some of the rhetoric around rescuing sex workers to come serve us coffee 
doesn't hold true to a population who's already in the mainstream. So you, yeah, yeah. you can't sell them the bag of goods. You can't romanticize square work. And people in the book talk about how, you know, alienated they feel and how like just demoralized they feel in square work because this population has done, they've gone, they've done the training and education. It's a highly educated population. And we tend to see that among off street workers. They, they, you know, bought the idea that we live in a just world, go get your educations, spend more time in libraries than you would in pubs, get your degree, go out there and the workforce will have something for you. Right. But, yeah. you know, for these folks that, that wasn't necessarily the case that they came out and had really fragmented jobs. They had really unstable jobs. They, you know, were some of them were abused in their mainstream jobs and thought, gosh, if I'm going to take this abuse for eight quid an hour, I may as well go work for myself and yeah. then, you know, do webcam on the side or supplement it with industry work on the side. So um, this population is is really it's it's unique to the policy makers and mainstream who wouldn't wouldn't think of a sex worker as someone who has a PhD, for example. But you know, mm-hmm. we we like they and because of those stereotypes, people who live dual lives are able to manage that duality because people don't assume that they're sex workers because of those stereotypes. So it is kind of like they play on those stereotypes, but then even in the book they talk about how you know, even in playing off those stereotypes, it is an internalizing um, oppression, right? But they get away with hiding in plain sight, because people would never assume that this population um, engaged in sex industry work. Yeah, we'll talk about how they manage um, duality in a minute. But I was just curious to find out what your process was of like, how did you find these people and engage with them and work with them? Um, to gather the research for the book. Yeah, sure. And I I think that there is some insider privilege because I've been at this for quite a number of years. So when I moved, when I came back to the UK as an adult and was accepted as part of the UK um, research hub, and then I had access to um, certain adult services websites and certain populations to advertise within, and I was also um, on the board of Scott Pep, which is a Scottish uh, sex worker advocacy and support organization. And so I had access to populations that I can just promote the research, tell people what I was doing. They did background searches on me like crazy, you know, yeah, and it was, it, yeah. Yeah, it, was, it was good. And I was really glad that, that they did that because some of the people in my book hadn't shared their duality with anyone. Like they, mm-hmm. there's nobody who knew aside from their clients and, and then me, right? Yeah. And so as a student, there were people who didn't, like they contacted me, but they didn't want to engage in the research because they were out of fear, which is understandable. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for a, a PhD project, like usually um, that your average PhD student wouldn't necessarily have the access to do a project like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is because I've ha- I'm, I sort of came to it mid-career and uh, I was pretty clear about um, how I'm positioned on the issue and how I respect and um, value the contributions of sex workers. And everywhere I've ever worked, I, ha- I make sure that I'm surrounded by people with lived experience to drive the agenda, to deliver the services, to do all of that. So um, it was, uh, um, I had to keep this, the study quite small. I was yeah. getting calls from the US and everywhere else. And I really wanted to make sure that 
um, it was a small group that I could do a really deep dive into what they do, how they live, how they describe their experiences, how they, you know, evaluate and analyze their own behavior and context. So, um, and yeah, so I, I wanted to keep it quite small and contained to a couple of dozen so that, that I could do that. Yeah, how many was it? 25? Um, the UK yeah. sample was 25. The larger yeah. sample was 35 because I reached yeah. back and talked to about 10 people who were part of my um, MA work to just right. see where they are now. Oh, interesting, <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so that's, that was not included in the um, original research. Like the data is there, but not the, I didn't, I didn't have room. <laughs> yeah. You think 100,000 words in a PhD is huge, but it's actually, <laughs> when you're doing There's original research, yeah. yeah, it's a lot. And so I had yeah. to pull that population out. And so that will sit elsewhere. But I wanted the book to focus on the UK sample, because I wanted to also see if duality was lived any differently than it was in Canada, for example, where uh, my MA work took place. And, you know, some of the reasons and some of the strategies were very, very similar, because it's a similar socio-legal yeah. environment. Yeah. Um, but for there was a far more commuting, because I think in North America, the cities are quite large, so you can be a bit more anonymous. But yeah. in, in the UK, there people were like, well, it's a tough the train job in the UK, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's not they got to move. Go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the um, what your contributors had to say because they're so it's so insightful, and there was so much that I learned that I would just never have thought of, and a lot of that is the practical side of things. Um, but first, I just wanted to talk about the mental and emotional work of duality, um, and the thing that stood out for me was just the complexity of how people manage their the dual identities of sex and square work and also transitioning between them so what what did you learn from the contributors about this oh gosh some people felt that they were it's a big made question for it. yeah, yeah it's a huge question because yeah. it, it like managing hiding what you do for work is really really difficult um and it's all of that stress from keeping secrets then you have to like make sure your who who knows what about you segregate your audiences manage all your technology and devices so that there's no integration um and you know to try and keep your worlds from colliding and you know it, it, it's a very very stressful thing for people um mm. and to have to lie to people who they care about is very very difficult yeah. um but the part of why they do that is to be outed is is social death it's absolutely um, you lose everything. You lose square jobs, you lose sex work jobs, you lose relationships, you could lose everything. You can lose your kids, you can be evicted. Yeah. All kinds of harms happen when uh, sex workers are known to us. Yeah. So in order to protect their families and their kids and their aging parents from stigma, they mm -hmm. hide, even though some of their roles are quite integrated. So if they're in health services in their square job and they're doing sexual massage in sex industry work, there's a lot knowledge of the body salient, one job mm -hmm. informs the other, one job makes them better at the other. And so they get the real transferable skills, but yet they have to keep those roles apart because you could lose your license in the square industry if somebody knew that you were you yeah. know, doing massage on the side and that kind of thing. So um, yeah, just holding those secrets. Was what difficult. kinds of jobs did they do? Square jobs? Well, like, 
I kept it kind of vague because yeah. I didn't want to risk outing people. But um, most of the individuals were in the private sector. Um, I can't go into the details of the jobs. Yeah. Um, some were in the public sector. Some held jobs in public trust. Um, some were in the charity sector. They held a wide range of mainstream jobs, a wide range that required that required the education that they had. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. And so. Yeah. They were, and they had a lot of work experience in both industries, which was really interesting. And most of the individuals came from sole square jobs into duality okay. for various reasons. So they were working their mainstream job. They might've had an emergency. They might have to you know, pay for tuition. They might have some something that they had to deal with that they decided to then supplement that income with, with sex industry work and then continued on with that because it was just a way to make sure that they were dealing with precarity in the mainstream markets and that yeah. they could also really control and be really selective about who they saw in sex industries because you're not solely reliant on your money from industry so when a client comes to you and, and says they want, to, want you to do X, Y, and Z, you can say no to that, which is the absolute definition. That's the distinguishing factor between sex work and survival sex. For some of us who've been at this a while, we say that survival sex is an inability to refuse work or to refuse that next client. So yeah. if you're in a position where you can say yes or no to the shift in the square job, yes or no to clients in sex industries, you're really in a good position to, yeah. to you know take care of yourself prioritize your kids somebody in the book said that duality makes her a better mother because she can yes. spend time with her kids when yeah. she's when they're sick and not have to be penalized in her square job for having to stay home and take care of the kids and and, yeah. and really working um the industry around and seeing booking clients in ways that work for them when it works for them where it works for them um, yeah. And and yeah, just that ability to to refuse work and refuse services. It's yeah. it's an incredibly powerful position. But with that, it comes the weight, the weight of secrets, the weight of worrying about being outed. Um, there are people in the book, one individual in particular, I think I included her, who said that uh, a client stole something from her, mm. and she couldn't report it. Yeah, because <laughs> then the police would be, well, why was that person there? And then you know, so they're, they're targets for victimization because of the ways they work and, and how they work and because they work in secret. Um, but the benefits to them are just getting on the property ladder or having a savings account or leaving school debt free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with, you know, things yeah. that we can all understand. Like I went to school with someone who, not my, my PhD, but my MA with someone who was in sex industries and she funded her tuition throughout. So with all the awards and grants that I won, I still owe tens of thousands in student yeah. loan debt. And she yeah. left debt-free to start her life, you know, anew, right? Yeah. So it's logical why people would um, do a little sex work on the side, get that down payment for to get on the property ladder and then have an investment or have some savings and have some security they there it's that thing about flex security right like they're creating the security that we should be providing through the state for yeah. people who work in term employment and in precarious labor where between jobs we provide income that keeps them in in the housing that they have that may explore other careers and opportunities but just that 
boom and bust, we should be taking care of people. But yeah. these individuals said, you know what, nobody's doing this for me, I got to do it for myself, screw it, I'm not gonna, you know, struggle and live just above subsistence, I want to build a life, right, and they want yeah. to, they want more than bread and water. And, you know, some people might say that's greed, but it's usually quite privileged people Let's say that's greed, if you've never been poor, and you've never been homeless, and you've never heard a kid cry because they're hungry, you have no leg to stand on here. And right. it's also not what it's like, it's not the focus isn't what these folks are doing. We have to look at the environment that we've created, the labor markets that we've created that made it so that there's this choice architecture. And within that context, people see that there are opportunities to earn money. They can stay on the zero hours contract and negotiate with the manager to try and get on the roster and do things mm -hmm. that are probably compromising themselves or they can find other ways to innovate. And duality is just a way of innovating, a modern way. We've been doing it for generations. There are always folks who have been in the dual, the bad end or the, the Yeah, you took short about end of the Victorian times a bit. Yeah. 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 And how we thought servants and hat makers and sempstresses are were all available for sex because, you know, how else are they going to, they're eking out this meager living in the sewing trades, right? Yeah. And, you know, and even miners with the above ground jobs, they're, they're running the bars, they're offering sexual services, and they're, they're working in both industries. Like there is um, that great book, The State of Sex by Barbara Brents and um, uh, oh, I can't remember her name now. Kate, she's going to kill me. Oh, I can't remember her name now. Um, Kate Hasback. And they talk about how women like that built the industry. They built that city. They built it because of the ways that they worked in between sex industries and, and square jobs. And that's just yeah. been the reality for many women who were on the sort of more harsh end of the dual labor market, where one job would never be enough to survive, never. Yeah. And there are cultures and populations that have always been outside of that ideal family wage where you can support a family and have savings and go on holidays. You know, mm. that's a dream for a lot of people and even more and more, it's a dream because I remember um, I was at uni and I think I ordered from Tesco or something and, and the driver had four jobs. Oh, yeah. You know, it's yeah, delivery. Yeah. yeah, it's not unusual at all for folks that you would think um, wouldn't. And, you know, some of those jobs are above board, some of them aren't. <laughs> some of them yeah. you pay taxes, some you don't. But, you know, people are hustling and making a living and trying to make ends meet. And we can't then turn and judge the populations that are doing this. We have to look at why are we practicing capitalism in a way that yeah. people who, you know, people can't can't find full-time decent waged employment why yeah. is that everything we do is a reaction to our circumstances isn't it it's not just a random choice that's not based on anything um, and we contribute to that environment as well because we can decide that we're going to close all of our accounts with all of these entities that you know underpay their workers right we can right, decide yeah. like we contribute to to that practice of capitalism and we can yeah. change it if we all chose to, absolutely. Yeah. They would have to do something different if we stopped buying the goods and ordering the services and just perpetuating this sort of um, exploitation of other workers. Mm. We'll talk a bit about, towards the end, about um, 
what how we can support um, as individuals ourselves. But um, well, a lot reading the book, it's so complex, and there's all this emotional management that people have to do, and the transitioning between the two is very complex. And it was really interesting and nice to hear about. I don't know, like some people use different outfits, different spaces, all this kind of the book. It's you learn so much from your book. And one of the things that got me was like the, just the practical side of it. So you mentioned technology earlier and how people manage their like hardware and their accounts and things like that. And um, financial exclusion is an issue as well, isn't it? I, I didn't realize that some banks would prevent sex workers from opening bank accounts. So it'd be interesting if you could speak a bit about how day-to-day issues like these affect the lives of people doing sex work and people doing sex work and square work. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting how technology, you know, for it's you can't be anonymous anymore. You can't really control and manage your, you know, who sees what and manage your content, your pictures, your your contact lists. Like there's certain software. I don't want to get sued, so I <laughs> but there's certain um, software that wants to integrate everything. And so sex workers yeah. in the book talk about like opening their laptop and their square job. And then all of a sudden all their adult sites show up. And, yeah. you know, if you have one phone number in a list and all of a sudden this other social media platform wants to link you with a bunch of other people <laughs> to be your yeah, friends. I think one, of, one person had one of their clients coming up as a, I can't remember in what context now, but yeah. oh, it must be just so hard contact to and yeah, it does people's heads in. And so they do, they try and use VPNs, but there can be DNS leaks in, in VPNs. So mm. some of them aren't really worth, um, it's not even doing the job of it, <laughs> like it becomes useless. Um, but they're, yeah, they try and keep separate devices. There's even a project through Swarm called Dial Tone where they offer second phones to sex workers to, because it's not just the practicality of managing it. It is that it's the mental health and the, the well, the wellness and the well-being and the reducing stress of having like separation between church and state in some ways, like separation yeah. between, even if you're doing soul sex work, you, you have to have separation between that work and your personal life. And when you're managing duality, then you have your square job and your square contacts, and then you have your, and your family, then you have your sex industry contracts. And and you also have your personal life. Like, so there's a lot that people have to manage. So I talk about the dual life relational paradigm where there's overlapping spheres of interaction and there's some that are really volatile. Um, and, and, And it's just managing those mixed audiences and managing who knows what about you and yeah. what risks that that has for you and the privilege of being able to sort of excise yourself from situations that you know you can be outed um there, there's yeah. a, a, some talk of that but not everyone was successful in that there were times when like there are people who were outed in the tabloids and you know i was very careful about sharing those stories so i don't re-out them um but no what we do when we find out that people have active or former involvement in sex industries, we're absolutely incredibly cruel, incredibly cruel. We don't embrace people. And so dealing with the stigma associated with sex work is a project for us all, even in a decriminalized environment. We have to decide that sex workers are part of our workforce and part of our families and communities and not hatched on the street corner, but they're actually people that contribute to our our economies, our worlds, our families. And the thing about these folks is that 
they hear how people talk about sex workers and but they don't know that they are sex workers so they hear like these horrific um jokes and derogatory statements and the way the world sees and treats sex workers so that keeps them in hiding as well so that's why my advice to them is to stay hidden because you know like the world isn't really ready to fully embrace we say we are but we we Mm. don't we say oh you know we have to support these women i always say women not recognizing that people of all genders trade sex but oh support these women and then i think for some reason people might expect sex workers to leave sex industries and go sweep floors and serve as coffee coffee or something it's like these people are leaving the sex industry coming after your job like they're educated they're savvy they're skilled but for the people in the book in particular, yeah, they're, they're already in those jobs. You already know them, right? Yeah. And so that kind of demystifies the population is that they're people you already know in your communities um, that you might not know they're sex workers. So then it, will you treat these folks differently? Will you treat sex industry workers differently knowing that they're just like you? Will you? Like, that's the question. Yeah. Will we look at our safety nets will we look at universal credit and recognize living off 200 quid a month is not humane mm-hmm. when people are on statutory sick i talk about an officer who was um outed for working in sex industries while he was on statutory sick and he was on half pay and it's like okay so we vilified the officer okay fine great okay he took an oath maybe you believe he violated the oath but recognize that he's living on half wages in an environment where his his rent costs half of what he would make. And why are we giving people 90 quid a week to live on when they're sick? Right. Like, why? Yeah. Why aren't we when it's not enough those for rates? them to pay their rent? And yeah. And not worry and to heal right we have sick people who are worried about being homeless like and then we have a health minister matt hancock who's like i can't i couldn't live on statutory sick it's like well there's something wrong with that then yeah you know like there's something deeply deeply wrong so what folks are doing who live dual lives is making sure they have investments and savings and things paid for and, and making sure they've repaid debt and so that they're in a strong financial position but these folks are not denied bank accounts unless they're outed, right? For sex workers yeah. who we work with at National Ugly Mugs, and there was actually a letter, um, um, the Decrim Now and Swarm and all the groups got together and NUM signed on to a letter to banking institutions because sex workers have their accounts closed or else they're denied accounts. And we would never deny a bank account to a victim of of domestic violence or someone fleeing abuse. They're squirreling money away, right? And and they're trying to to get some financial security so that they can make decisions that are in their best interest. And if we're, what, like, and this is done without explanation from banking. So we're, we're exploring this a little further to see where is this coming from? Is it that you see sex workers as criminals, that their money's proceeds of crime? Because both of those things aren't true, right? Yeah. And so, and for sex workers during a pandemic who need a bank card because nobody's taking cash, for people who were supporting onto universal credit, where do you think the, the money has to go to a bank account, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there has to be a reason for this financial exclusion. And we yeah. want to explore that um, at NUM and with uh, the sex worker led groups to get some answers and maybe inform some policymakers in banking that you, you can't do this to people. Like you can't, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're denying them full cultural citizenship then. 
And so what? They've saved money under their mattress. So we force them to work alone. They're saving their money under mattresses and offenders come to their house knowing that they're alone, rob them. And then what? Like we're setting up the conditions that yeah, lead to just violence and really vulnerable, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think... And you can't really um, make decisions on what the policies should be without finding out what the issues are from the sex workers, can you? That's the whole point of the book in a way, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and how um, that's different among the different populations. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to jump to the question about the labour market because I think it, this moves into that. Um, and obviously many people take up work in the sex industry because the labour market is kind of increasingly exploitative and some sex worker jobs are also exploitative. But what can sex workers contribute to our understandings about labour market and precarity more generally? Yeah, I think because they live it, they live both environments. They've had the crappy jobs in sex industries. They've had the crappy jobs in square industries. And they've just figured out how to avoid the exploitation of solely relying on an unstable labor market that they're just working uh, yeah. between the two right? that's what you're talking because about they, earlier yeah yeah like they just figured out that the best way to have any sort of security and control over your life is to work in both and then mm. control and manage um your income in both um yeah and it is that it is that you know they gain these insights and they they can reflect back at us what harms exist and then how they're innovating to avoid some of these harms but i think that i don't i i think that there'll be a lot of resistance to dealing with poverty um among workers and the working poor like people who are in work and homeless and that kind of thing because looking at a guaranteed income will mean that capitalists are not going to be able to underpay workers the way that they are right that yeah. if we invest in mental health and addictions issues and housing and, you know, um, and, and making sure that nobody drops below the poverty line, then workers are going to be strong, healthy, selective, critically thinking. And that's not what our brand of capitalism wants. <laughs> they don't okay. want organized workers who are, are selective. And, you know, there's this, I was watching this news thing from the U.S. the other day where the stimulus checks pay more than the low paying jobs. So some businesses aren't able to find employer employees because they're making more through the stimulus checks will create that exact environment. So capitalists are not going to want um, people living below poverty. They're not, they mm -hmm. want a desperate workforce who are willing to do any job. And, you know, this population of people who live dual lives decided that they don't want to be part of that cohort. That they're, uh, they're it's a way of sure opting that, out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely a way of opting out. And, and people do it without industry work. They do it with side hustles and other things, too, to just have yeah. that income security um, and flexibility and choice. But, yeah, you know, we there was this article in The Guardian about all of the UK billionaires that we've manufactured during the pandemic, yet we can't get enough resources together to make sure that sex workers aren't working during a pandemic, for example, like, you know, there, there's such extreme um, wealth juxtaposed to extreme poverty that some people have just had enough. And this yeah. book is full of people that have just said, I've had enough and I'm going to yeah. make sure 
that I have the resources I need to take care of my family. And, mm-hmm. and that's basically it. It's just their resistance and rejection to the marketplaces that we've created. Yeah, which is, there's a lot of innovative things, I think, there, but very depressing that they haven't got that safety net if they choose not to do that. Yeah. Um, so in Bristol, at the moment, the council is looking to ban sexual entertainment venues, which they call SEVs. Um, is there, I just wanted to ask you, um, is there any evidence that suggests that the existence of SEVs actually increases the incidence of sexual assault and violates women's rights? It's just some, something that people are campaigning against and talking about in Bristol at the moment. Yeah, and I saw that. And the, the short answer is uh, no. <laughs> There's no right, baseline. <laughs> There's no empirical evidence that says that. Yeah. Um, and you, to demonstrate that SE, not only the SEVs increases violence against women and girls, but also it does so more so than um, football matches and marriage and <laughs> poverty right. and alcoholism. Like, how does how is it situated in the context of drivers for economic or, or for violence against women and, and girls? Right. So yeah. I'd really loved. I'm a researcher. I'm in a practitioner's body right now, um, <laughs> but I'm interested in uh, evidence. So if there is evidence to that effect, then absolutely I'd want to see it. Um, but I definitely I think that if taxpayers of Bristol want to close the sexual entertainment venues, and that's their choice, that's their prerogative as voters and as taxpayers, but they definitely need to invest in those transition packages that we were talking about to make sure that they're not making destitute the workers in those venues. And those workers have a choice. They can go to environments that have an above ground regulated sex industry. Some people want to work in those establishments because the state has eyes in, the public has eyes in, mm. you know, and then they have, you know, more, they feel safer in those environments. They feel safer, safer and well-regulated um, sex industry venues. But if we're at that place where, you know, we want to close down all of the sexual entertainment venues in certain parts, then you're going to create a thriving underground vent, like underground economy there anyway. Um, yeah. People will move, um, but we just have to support people to move. And so that they're not moving to then be in a more desperate situation in another city, but they have the resources they need to explore their careers to move if they want to, like I said earlier, to follow the industry below ground if they choose to, but mm-hmm. they're not forced to. And so when we make sex workers unemployed, then that's when the exploiters are leaning back in their chairs and going, okay, great. Like I'm gonna open an, 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 an a basement. I'm gonna open an informal environment for yeah. the industry to thrive. And then there's, there's nobody regulating. There's a people, certain people in, those underground economies um, are quite dangerous. And that's where we want women to end up. So none of these strategies about shutting workplaces without the consultation, they are doing a consultation to be fair. I don't know how, yeah, they they are, they've done it before and they'll do it again. And I believe that NUM will be involved in um, submitting evidence. I think it started on the 6th of June, the consultation. Yeah. It's it's early days, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, but I don't know how weighted the um lived experience will be and people who are practitioners like us or you know active sex workers how weighted um the consultation will be to because 
it's it's this thing, right? Like everyone is entitled to an opinion about whether sex work should exist, how, where, whatever. Talk about it at the pub, but yeah, not everyone has the should be informing policy. Not that everyone, was one of my right? that was one of my favorite lines in the book. It's such a good point, and it's such a good point across so many areas of policy as well. Yeah, it's we want to hear from experts, and who are the experts on this issue? People with lived experience. Active sex workers are first in the queue, right? Practitioners who provide support to these individuals are, are, are next. Researchers who do quality research with diverse populations are next, right? People with former or formerly involved in sex industries, survivors, they're important, but not here, right? Not with this. They're not going to be directly impacted by the policy decisions that we're making. So, mm. you know, MPs and, and politicians, they, they're supposed to be open and objective and show leadership and all of that. But some of them come in with an opinion because they don't want violence against women and girls, but nobody does. But mm. they may not agree with the approach. Like, I'm, I'm a woman of color. I'm a Black woman. So... I come from, I can only be where I am today because of a rights agenda. So naturally, based on what I've seen, the people I bury, the work that I've done in the industry over these past few decades, emancipation through rights is what I see as a pathway because I've seen every other strategy. I've seen criminalization, I've seen humiliation, I've seen every other approach that we've used mm -hmm. not work and cause more harm to people. So we have to look at labor rights, we have to look at choice and options. We have to look at sex worker control of the industry. We have to look at how they can design out harm and increase safety. We have to deal with stigma. We have to deal with poverty. We have to deal with all of these things, right? And we can do that um, as long as, and sure, there will be a place for enforcement, especially when sex workers are empowered to bring people forward and name names of the people who hurt them. Yeah. There's a place for enforcement, but we dump so much money into enforcement. It's almost like a make work project. It's like you, you put money in enforcement, you criminalize, then you create like oppressions and people with criminal records don't leave sex industries. Why would they? They're so demoralized mm -hmm. by it all. So they, they end up being trapped in those cycles. And so I think that we can approach these economic and social issues with responses that are going to address root causes and bring us advance the issues, advance rights issues and health issues and safety issues, um, instead of just this blunt, heavy instrument of criminalization. Um, and it's surprising to me because I always wonder about, you know, who's benefiting, whose interests are being served by playing into the hands of exploiters. Yeah. Why are all of these feminists interested in this faulty, design of asymmetrical criminalization why do they think that you know criminalizing selling or buying and not selling doesn't harm sex workers it's like mm -hmm. you're making them poor instantly and then yeah. what they don't do the they don't do the social safety net first they don't provide housing and resources and money and all that first i would have more respect for folks who would do that first and then that, start that to would... disrupt the labor market or disrupt their market if you know but you take care of them first or put them in a position where they have choices yeah isn't it? yeah yeah choices income all of that you do that first because it's supposed to be a strategy for safety yeah. and it's not just about decimating adult industries because then sex workers are the casualties yeah 
I think you've answered my next question in many ways, um, but what specific things need to change now then, if not going in this direction, in terms of policy and organisational support to protect sex workers, including those managing duality? Yeah, I think we've covered some of that. It is about really seeing and including sex workers as allies, that they are allies in community safety, they're allies in crime prevention, they're allies in combating trafficking and childhood exploitation. They, they are the most, the party that's the most interested in safety and rights for sex workers. It's them, mm -hmm. they want that for themselves. So yeah, in addition to you know addressing all of those things around poverty, we have to make sure that people who don't want to be in the industry have a way out and not out to universal credit, but out to like viable, livable wage jobs, training, education, et cetera. And those who want to professionalize their sex work, we have to support them in being safe and in taking control. And that's, it's, it's simple. And I think that um, finding charities and organizations that do this is important that we have to um, work, you, we would never support a charity for women who didn't have any women involved, for example. Yeah. So we have to support initiatives and charities and services that include the populations that we say we serve. And yeah. then we're always going to be grounded in their lived experience and always going to be able to re rely on their expertise and bounce things off them and you know, recognize what cause and effect will be if I do A, what happens to this population and that population, and that population, right? Because there's such diverse populations within industries that we have to do no harm to all of them because mm -hmm. it's such a precarious market that we can't create, we can't destabilize one segment and expect the rest. I don't know what we expect of the rest, but you know we're mm -hmm. gonna we're gonna cause ripple effects and harm um, to the rest of the industry. And for some, they don't know who we're talking about when we talk about sex workers, right? Like they're the students, the seniors, the working class, the middle class, like migrants, yeah. asylum seekers, like all of you know women fleeing abuse in, that find income in sex industries. Like they're all these populations that we are supposed to care so much about. Sex workers are, are incredibly diverse and intersectional. And, you know, you really learn a lot about the kinds of values that we have and the kinds of investments we make when you look at the welfare of sex workers in a society. And yeah. so they're, they're really reflecting to us that we need to make some serious changes and criminalization isn't the answer. No, I wanted to um, finish up just by asking you what else you're involved in at the moment. So as well as the book, what projects are you and National Ugly Mugs working on to promote sex worker rights? And what can the public do to support them? Sure. Um, I'm always looking for investment for our programs, for our support services. We hire sex workers to deliver and design our programs. So it's a, an opportunity for sex workers to design our support services, design our community education, lead and engage in advocacy. We're the only, I believe the only in the world, the only um, digital platform for reporting and alerting for sex workers to report harm and to have those processed into alerts that prevent, um, prevent violence and prevent harm. So um, definitely always looking for investment for our core work. We have a case work team of victim support caseworkers. Some are independent sexual violence advisors. 
and they provide support to every single person who reports into us. So at most of the reports that we get are from sex workers themselves. Some we get from police who want um, sex workers to look out for people, and some are third-party reports from practitioner groups. Right. But the sex workers who report to us are entitled to victim support. So we make sure that we provide that and make sure that we support them in coping and recovering. What we're seeing more and more is that they're opting out of um, sharing information with police. So sex workers have the choice to report anonymously, share it with the community, or share anonymous intel with, intel with police, or to provide full reports to police where our caseworkers will facilitate that from report to court. But sex workers tend to be opting out of engaging in police and just want to share the information with others in their community right. um, yeah. to pre prevent harm. So we're definitely working on that. We want, we're, we have a new platform coming out. It's always coming out. Um, it's a little yeah. late. It's supposed to come out next week. But I want to grow NUMS membership because right now we're just over 7,500 with about 6,500 folks identifying as active sex workers in the UK. Okay. And that's probably less than 5% of people who trade sex. So wow. um, we have, yeah, it's, it's, you know, thinking about the population, including people who live dual lives, including migrants here. It's huge populations. We can't, we don't have a good estimate um, and we won't because some folks, they just don't want to be counted and that's yeah. their prerogative. Um, yeah. But we want to make sure that, you know, we're providing that we're useful to at least 30 to 40 percent of the industry. So growing the membership with a new platform and sharing those alerts will be really important. Um, and then we've developed some mental health resources initially for people who are dealing with grief and loss and, and struggling with suicide ideation. Okay. We have. A digital program that we're trialing right now with a cohort of sex workers it's a six-week program that's done through an app so that people can deal with anxiety and, and cope through depression and those kinds of things um we have we created a directory of sex worker friendly therapists which you think oh great but then you think why the heck do you need one and it's unfortunate but we do need one <laughs> because yeah. sex workers face a lot of stigma so we have that and some of those um therapists are willing to provide these numb packages which are like three sessions that numb has had um investment to pay for we don't have a lot of them but to okay. pay for um three sessions for sex workers who are struggling with mental health um and then we're launching a, 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 a project into visual violence um so that visual we, violence yeah like image-based violence oh, okay. sex workers experience theft of content they get filmed on streets they there's all kinds of ways that sex workers are harmed um fake photographers take their images and extort them so we right. want to beyond revenge porn because revenge porn doesn't actually protect sex workers so we want to hear what their experiences of image-based violence is what they need in terms of services and redress and also in terms of advocacy um, for the population because uh you know during the pandemic we saw more and more people who were new to industries influx into on, yeah. on okay. online forms of sex working and you know um they're just susceptible to all kinds of extortion and violence and people in the industry it's like when there's no sort of 
labor rights and and you know no control like sex industries are are sex workers are sometimes really um susceptible to managers and agents and those folks because they design and control the industry Um, so at times there's opportunities for exploitation that we want to uncover with sex workers and also find ways to respond to that don't uh, put sex workers at risk um, but find ways to respond to those things that they need. Um, and one of the most important things that we've done um, during our COVID emergency response was to provide emergency food and hygiene supplies through vouchers to sex workers. So we got some investment to do that. We delivered thousands of vouchers to sex workers who were starving at home and weren't allowed to leave. And if they did leave, they were fined, but they some had to work during the pandemic, right? Yeah. And so we just wanted to be able to support them and other sex worker led groups we shared resources with to make sure, you know, they had a bag of groceries that they can feed their kids for a couple of days while we support them in accessing other income. Yeah. But now we're seeking investment for that um, emergency support to sex workers post victimization who the last thing that that you would want a woman to do is to pull down her skirt and go back to work. That we should have something for people in terms of an emergency support to keep them housed, keep them stable, get the supplies that they need, and then support them in what they wanna do next in terms of the victim support, but also in terms of their lives and careers. So we Mm -hmm. have this campaign called the National Ugly Mug Meals where um, we have recipes and we have these mugs and, Um, We'll relaunch it again when the website comes up, but we're really seeking investment from folks to one, help us employ sex workers to deliver and design programming, and two, help us continue with our core work and to provide these emergency resources to men, women, trans folks who are fleeing violence and who just need that moment to heal and recover and then to explore what else is out there, what else is meant for them to do. Um, yeah. So for us, we're, and then we'll, we're also looking to expand, we have some investment to expand into transition supports, where we'll have mm-hmm. some online tools and develop some support services around that. We're doing, working with sex workers to do research into communities of those in protected categories, so workers of color, um, Uh, migrant workers, trans workers, other marginalized populations within the sex industries, because we didn't touch on the hierarchy, um, but the sex industry is quite stratified. Yeah. And so people, migrants, people of color, people with a lot of, who get a lot of quote unquote attention from police in the States are occupying lower rungs because they can't offer discretion and privacy and all of that to their clients. So those are folks who experience high rates of violence Um, And also state violence in terms of criminalization and deportation for migrant workers, because that's what they get. We give them handcuffs. Um, So there are populations that we have to do better for. We just have to. So within NUM, there'll be this continuum of services that go from prevention right to transition supports. And then that fills some gaps that are in the community and also dovetails with some of the services that are available um, in the community and and inside and outside the criminal justice system. So we're looking to do a lot of that. (laughs) Um, Really busy. um, Yeah, so uh, many, so many different strands and layers to it, aren't there? Yeah, and we just want to provide like that complete service so that people who live dual lives can access NUM without fear of being outed, 
you know, um, that can report violence, can seek the resources, because a lot of sex workers, particularly off-street workers, are not walking into bricks and mortar services because they'll be outed. They're not going to just out themselves in their communities. That's just horrific. So they would rather um, receive support digitally by phone, email, text, video chat, whatever that is. So we have to respond to the diverse needs of all of these um, adult industry populations um, and have some versatility in how we engage with them. And then we're designing programs to suit their needs. So you know, like to get investment, to be able to innovate and to address our mandate, because our mandate is to end all forms of violence against sex workers and to end the conditions that contribute to survival sex. So those are huge mandates, but they Mm. are tied to anti-poverty and anti and violence against women and girls and all of those other agendas, Mm. except they just need to be colored and catered more to really diverse populations of sex workers in order to be effective yeah and of course all your work will be informed by sex workers themselves and so you have that circle as well oh thank you raven for speaking to me today it's absolutely fascinating and your book is is genuinely really insightful and made me think about things in a different way so thank you for that as well fantastic thank you um, so you can find out more about National Ugly Mugs, including how to invest at uglymugs.org. That's U-G-L-Y-M-U-G-S dot org. And more information about Raven's book, which is called Work, Money and Duality, Trading Sex as a Side Hustle, can be found on the Policy Press website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.